0: Hi. Hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non Catholics, for new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Keith Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That question led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith history, the Bible history of Christianity, why I believed what I believed, and much, much more. It was in that journey where I encountered for the very first time the Catholic Church in its own words, and I realized then what I thought I knew about Catholics and the Catholic faith, that the, the practice of Catholicism, was based in large part on misinformation, and more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. I didn't know what I didn't know. They didn't understand what I knew either. and So this podcast is, is born out of that same idea. The idea is to fill in the gaps between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. And this week, guys, well, this is really the the perfect kind of episode for this show, in my opinion. It's, it's a wonderful, cordial example of, of, I think, how to explain, how to ask some of those same questions that I was wrestling with in that journey. At that time, I'm joined by John Martignoni. He is a, a long time, very long time, veteran Catholic apologist, radio host, author, speaker, a wonderful guy who, who joins me to wrestle with some of those questions that I really couldn't answer as an evangelical Christian, as a Protestant. The questions of the nature of the church, of scripture, of authority, of what to do when we disagree on uncertain things, and what aspects of our faith are, are, are essential, what aren't. These kinds of questions, these things that I encountered as an evangelical Christian and really didn't know what to do with. Well, you guys know the end of, of my story. I became Catholic, and for me, that was a, a, an answer to a lot of those kinds of questions. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to make your own conclusions. I think that's the cordial thing to do, and, and John's right there with me in that same camp. We're not going to say, hey, convert or die. <laughs> we are going to say, hey, here are the questions that, that, that I wrestle with, that, that John realized were, were hot live issues. How do we answer these questions? Right? If we're going to live a truly examined life, an examined faith, if we're going to really hold our faith you know, at, at our chests, in, in our hearts, in, in our brains, logically, right, with, with our mind and our heart and our soul, we have to wrestle with questions of faith deeply, time and time again, that constant conversion to Christ when these questions arise. This is an important part of the Christian faith. For non-Catholic Christians, for, for Catholics, for all of us who claim to follow Christ, so so this is that. This is, this is a wonderful conversation. I, I'm really fired up to bring it to you, as you, as you can tell, <laughs> it was amazing. I really hope you enjoy it. This conversation, this show, is brought to you by our, our patrons at Patreon.com/slash/CordialCatholic and our one-time sponsors at PayPal.me/slash/CordialCatholic. Guys, this isn't my full-time job, so your support of this show, your listening, your prayers, and your financial giving helped make this thing go and grow week after week. We couldn't do it without you, so thank you for your support. If you want to support this show as well, those links are in the show notes. Please prayerfully consider that, and then have a look at how you can help us out. And thank you in advance. And now, without any further ado, my fantastic conversation with John Martignoli on uh, on the questions that I wrestled with as an evangelical that I simply couldn't answer. It's a wonderful, cordial conversation. I hope you love it. Please listen and enjoy. Hello friends, welcome back to the show thanks for watching, thank you for listening Uh, if you are listening on podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify please take a minute to subscribe to the show to follow the show and if you could leave a rating or review that helps to push the podcast out to new listeners and help them to hear fantastic conversations like this one we're about to have here if you are watching on YouTube thank you for watching, welcome, please make sure you follow this channel, subscribe, hit the bell for notifications each and every week when new episodes come out and please do like this video, send it to a friend, and interact in the comments below. We're sure to get lots of great comments on this conversation, guys, this week. I am joined by John Markinoli. He is the the president and founder of the Bible Christian Society. Uh, From 2003 to 2020, the host of EWTN's Open Line, a fantastic radio program, John. Uh, I I feel like I'm in the wrong seat here in this conversation, actually, (laughs) uh, with you. And the author of some fantastic books, including Blue Collar Apologetics, How to Explain and Defend Catholic Teaching Using Common Sense, Simple Logic, and the Bible, and A Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism, Catholic Questions, Protestants. Can't answer, uh, both out from Sophia Institute Press. And John is also the director of evangelization for the Diocese of Birmingham down there in Alabama. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for being here. And hello.
1: Well, hello, Keith. And, and it is good to be here on The Cordial Catholic uh, because I have quite often been accused of not being very cordial at times. So, you know, it, it's good to be on a program that says, I am being cordial.
0: <laughs> you know, that that's fantastic, John. Good way of putting it. And you know, I would joke that it's an aspirational title. It, it's it's a, a title to you. Ask my wife, and I'm not nearly as cordial as I may get out to be on, on 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 this show, or try to be. But this is this is the aspiration, John. So maybe it's a bit of a rehab for you. It's a program we can we can put you through to get you there. But either way, we're. A, We're aspiring to that, but but I see the work. You know, know, the work you do, the bulk of your career, right, is defending, explaining the Catholic faith. I mean, you're on the radio for like seventeen years, answering questions about the Catholic faith, defending the faith. Your books are geared towards your your first book, defending the Catholic faith, answering those objections to Catholicism, explaining it from a simple, like logical, uh, scripture-based kind of point of view. In your latest book, is I think it's fantastic for this kind of an audience for this show is wrestling with those questions that you just it are hard to answer a- as a Protestant. I-, I think that's a you know f- fantastic work, and I gotta say, you know, that's the for many people, myself included, John, that's the genesis of this journey. Like we we encounter, you know, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith, and I began this journey eventually becoming Catholic because I encountered questions that I couldn't answer. As an evangelical Protestant, I went to my Bible, I went to theologians that I knew, I I read deeply from church history, from the history of of Christianity and and the the canon of the Bible, how the Bible was formed and put together, and the various reformers, the Reformation. I couldn't answer these questions. And for me and for many listeners to this show, uh, John, the, the answers are found in the early church fathers, who, as you dig deeper, look and sound more and more Catholic. And then you turn to the teachings <laughs> yeah. of the Catholic Church. I always say this, John, that all those misunderstandings and, and misconceptions I had were really based on me not reading the, the Catholic Church in her own right. words, right? I read from authors who talk about the Catholic Church or, or listen to debates or, or, or tapes back in the day or lectures on YouTube, right, that, that were from people who were talking about the Catholic faith who weren't actually Catholic, Right, so right. this kind of work that you're doing in these books, your talks, right, this kind of work, John, is the is the meat of the thing that I think I, I'm trying to week after week bring to our listeners. Not to say, hey, Protestants, you're you're an idiot. You said before we we went to air, John, you're <laughs> you I'm the idiot. You said right. We 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 approach this humbly, right? Not to say you guys are all all stupid, but it. For, for so many on this journey, and in my case, look, these are things we didn't realize or begin to wrestle with and, and couldn't begin to answer or, or were were questions we hadn't thought of before and once you begin to ask those questions right if we're if we're seriously seeking Christ, if we're seriously starting to do you know find the God of the Bible and be and be Christian, when we encounter questions, we got to wrestle those questions through to conclusion we we encounter you know a misconception. We got to do our best to clarify that misconception. So we're 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 being cordial. We're being cordial by 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 sharing with people this thing that we we found and we love and we know. <laughs>
1: right, John. Right. I I always tell people that uh, if you are being honest with someone, truthful with someone, then you are actually loving that person. Sure, yeah, yeah. Sure. E- even if the truth. Hurts their feelings, which quite often truth hurts our feelings, you know, because a lot a lot of times probably everybody at least once in their life or probably way more than once has been confronted with truth that they didn't like that made them uncomfortable. And sometimes you get mad at the person telling you the truth as opposed to just saying, uh, well, let's examine what this person is saying. Is it true or not? If it's not, I'll just ignore what they're saying. No big deal. If it is true and it's something that's challenging me, well, now I've got to figure out some way to answer this challenge in one way or another. And that's that's what I've gotten into, because I I got into this whole world of evangelization and apologetics because I was trying to respond to some very anti-Catholic, I mean, viciously yeah, anti-Catholic yeah, yeah. programming. And instead of getting mad and calling people names, I just said, hey, you need to let a Catholic respond to that. And so, uh, it, it, but slowly what I've been doing has evolved from just simply answering, like you said, misconceptions, misperceptions, half-truths, and sometimes outright lies about the Catholic Church and and what it teaches, to turning it around and challenging people who are not Catholic to really look at what they believe and why they believe it. And that's why in this new book that you mentioned, A Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism, I've got all these questions that I call them questions Protestants can't answer. And and it's not, again, it's not to say, oh, I'm right, you're wrong, or the Catholic Church is right, and Baptist Church or Evangelical Church or whatever, you're wrong. It's to challenge you yeah, yeah, yeah. to think because I love being challenged to think. And, and you know, you, you mentioned I was on the radio on on EW Ten Radio for seventeen years, and seventeen once a week for seventeen years. And I was taking questions from all over the country and, and sometimes from outside the country about the Catholic faith. And I got to the point where about the 283rd time I answered, Why do Catholics pray to Mary? You know, it's like, Oh, that, okay, that's getting kind of boring. For so I liked being challenged with questions I had never heard before. And so. Being challenging people and being challenged is what I like to do now because it's uh, um, you know I think Socrates said the unexamined life is isn't worth living. I've kind of to use Calvin and Hobbes terminology. I've I've transmogrified that into the unexamined doctrine isn't worth believing. And so if you if you believe something. You know, if you have the intellectual capacity to know why you believe it, well then you ought to know why you believe it. And and so that's what I, I do. I challenge people with these questions, with in my conversations, in my writings, to think about what you believe and why you believe it and to truly examine it. Cause what I've found a lot of times with, with non-Catholic Christians and I, I deal some with atheists too, but mostly non-Catholic Christians, Protestants, I'll just say in general, a lot of them have not actually thought through what they believe and why they believe it. And the same is true of a lot of Catholics yeah, no, as well, no. um, which is unfortunate, but it's, I, I look at it as iron sharpening iron and what I'm trying to do through my apologetics work through my evangelization work is to build up the body of Christ. Because at the very least now I'll I'll be honest, I'm trying to convert everybody to the Catholic church. All right. I don't say, well, if you're not Catholic, you're going to hell or I don't judge people that way. But what I do say is it is my belief that the Catholic church is the best vehicle or the best avenue if you will, for any given individual to reach salvation. Okay. Now, if you want to challenge me on that, I mean, not you personally, but anybody, (laughs) um, then that's what it's all about, but that's what I teach and preach. And so, because I believe that I want everybody to share the treasures of the Catholic faith that I have access to as a Catholic. And, but at the very least, again, in our conversations, in my conversations with non-Catholics, at the very least, I want them to have a, come away with a better understanding God, of what yeah. Catholics believe and why they believe it. Because if they're Christian, Baptist, Evangelical, Presbyterian, whatever, then if they end up with a better understanding of the Catholic faith, and I've dispelled some of the mistaken notions that they have about the Catholic faith, which almost every non-Catholic has mistaken notions about the Catholic faith— then what has that done? That has helped to build up the body of Christ, at least in some little way, shape, or form, and that's that's what I'm all about.
0: Nah, that's that's fantastic. That's very well said, John. And that's the, that's the thing. And I, you're right running so many points there. And I think one of the things that jumps out at me. Is and this I, I think Jimmy Aiken from Catholic Answers first kind of mentioned this idea in talking about sola scriptura, is that so many of these things that we inherit, and Jimmy of course is a convert as well, uh, like my like myself, we inherit we kind of we we inherit them. Right so you know you, you I became Christian at the age of say 13 14 in high school I went to the Christian bookstore and I got a Bible it was handed to me and I began to be a Christian right didn't know that you know, that was literally a tradition being handed on to me that here right. you need to be a Christian it's the Bible I didn't know there was other faith traditions. There was the history of the Reformation and the history of the church, where where prior to that, there were other ways of being Christian, right? And so those things we inherit, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned Catholics too, because we're Catholics, cradle Catholics, I think are equally guilty of this and many times, unfortunately, as as you said. But you inherit this thing that you don't necessarily really spend time to, to challenge and to examine and to really understand. You inherit a tradition you assume, well, oh, this is the air that we breathe. We believe this. Our Bible has this many books. We believe this about these kind of things here, and you don't realize that the air you're breathing, the water you're swimming in, is a certain kind of air, right, or, or, or a flavor of water, or, or a certain pond that you're in. To stretch that metaphor a bit too far, you don't, you don't, you don't realize that, right? And you, and I think, like you say, John, and this is perfect. Asking those questions, being exposed to those things, that iron sharpening iron, like you your faith unexamined in the face of questions like these uh, of questions that force you to dig deeper that that's hardly any faith at all like we need to be digging deeply into these questions right as, as much as i hate to to watch really good you know non-catholic christian debaters or 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 theologians or youtube apologists I'm like, oh, that's, that's a good argument against my Catholic faith. Right? But it forces me to, to then look deeper. How, would, how do I answer as a Catholic? And it forces me to dig deeper into my own faith, right? So I hope that we can do the same thing here and force, not in a bad way, in a deeply good way. Force everyone listening to just examine those things they hold, that air they breathe, the, the pond they swim in a bit more closely, and go, hey, you know what? I, I haven't heard this before. Or you, you know what? I, I kind of assumed this was the case, but it's not. And I want to begin. Maybe get, there, there's so much in, in here. In, in, and I'm looking at your second book here. We can't even we can touch the first one. mean, <laughs> that's a whole other thing to go into, John. So you, you can mine from where you want to. But there's. A lot to tackle here. I think maybe I want to begin with the idea of the church in general because here's one of those things that I just inherited and believed as a non-Catholic Christian, right? I, was, I had friends who were Pentecostal, so I, when I became Christian, they were Pentecostal, so I was Pentecostal, kind of, kind of de facto. And we believe that the church was this kind of universal body of Christ. There was no, like, physical building. There was a church, you know, Cedarview Community Church in, in Newmarket, Ontario, wonderful church, great people. But it wasn't part of anything other than, say, a denomination that was then part of this, this body of Christ that was, a, that was linked to, invisibly, all the Christians who were saved in quotes, around the whole world. But there wasn't this idea of a physical, hierarchical church that encompassed all Christians all over the world. We didn't believe that was a thing. Of, of course, then you wrestle with the question, well, what was Jesus founding when he talked to the apostles and started the church? But I got to that a little bit later. What I inherited when I began was this church that was just an invisible kind of body of Christ. And we were part of the denomination, but so were the Baptists, and so were the Methodists, and so were the Presbyterians. And they were, and they were all saved. They're all part of the Christian Church. Catholics actually weren't, in our opinion, at that that point in in my in my faith journey. But that's the idea we inherited. Now poke some holes in that, John, because I I encountered problems with that as I began to look deeper in that and into church history, because that wasn't always the case of what Christians believed it to be, right? So we're right. Where where do you begin with a, with a with a kind of a question like that or, or a subject like that to begin to kind of dig deeper into that? Well,
1: two things I do. Number one is I ask people. I say, okay, was the church, however you define it, was the church founded by Jesus Christ? Hundred percent across the board. Yes. Okay, is the church guided by the Holy Spirit? Pretty much, again, anecdotally, although I've asked the question hundreds of times, I've talked to thousands of Protestants within the last 25 years. Uh, uh, the answer is always yes. The church is guided by the Holy Spirit. So, okay, so can the church founded by Jesus Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit teach error in, in faith or morals? And that's where you get kind of, sometimes you get a blank stare. Uh, Sometimes you get, you know, an immediate, well, no, of course not. Uh, But then, and if they say, no, of course not, then you say, well, then, okay, tell me this. You're telling me that this amorphous, uh, somewhat nebulous, invisible spiritual church to which all true Christians belong, regardless of what denomination they're in. You're telling me that this church has Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Evangelicals, uh, you know, Pentecostals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're saying, yep, yep, absolutely. The the true Christians. I said, but they all believe different things. So is the church teaching them these different things or what? How does that work? You know, because Baptists don't believe in infant baptism. But Lutherans do, and evangelicals don't believe baptism has any, you know, that is purely symbolic, whereas Anglicans believe that you're regenerated through baptism, and and there are some people who believe in the rapture. There are some who don't, all within Protestantism, some who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, some a mid-tribulation rapture, some a post-tribulation rapture, some all three raptures. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yet they're all in the same yeah, church. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I ask, how is that possible if the church founded by Jesus Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit does not teach error? Because somebody in these in these beliefs, at least one one denomination here, I mean, when they have these contradicting beliefs, at least one of them is wrong, if not both of them are wrong. So how do you reconcile that with a church founded by Jesus and guided by the Holy Spirit? And that's one of those things where I've never really gotten a rational, logically consistent answer to. Well, except, well, what they'll do, they'll say, well, as long as you believe in the essentials, you can disagree on the non-essentials as long as you agree on the essentials. And that's when I say, okay, well, who decides what's essential or not? Because if the Lutherans are right about infant baptism, then infant baptism is essential. If the Baptists are right about baptism, then infant baptism isn't essential. Who gets – is the rapture essential or not? essential Who decides these things? Because I've told people, I've literally – I've grabbed my Bible, and I've I've, I've gone, okay, essential and non-essential. And I'll, I'll go to the table of contents, and I'll go, huh. And then I'll go back, and I'll look to see if there's an index back here. And I'll say, well, it's not there. And, and they'll go, well, what are you looking for? I was like – well, where in the Bible does it have that table that lists the essential and non-essential oh, yeah, doctrines? Yeah. You know, because who's deciding these things? And the other thing is, is I'll say, well, but don't you get all your doctrines from the Word of God? Absolutely, straight from the Bible. Well, which part of the Bible do you consider non-essential? Well, and, and so there's all these questions that just start stacking up one on top of the other that people cannot answer if, if it's like everybody belongs to the one true church. But all these denominations, which are, you know, for me, the word denomination simply means division. Yeah, yeah. All these divisions have differing belief systems or differing authority structures. You know, sometimes just a little bit different, but sometimes a whole lot different. I mean, oneness Pentecostals. They don't believe in the Trinity. Well, if they believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, are they in the church founded by Jesus Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit? So those, that's why I just keep asking the questions. And I'm not necessarily trying to, you know, browbeat somebody, give me an answer, you know, grab them by the collar and go, give me an answer. <laughs> I just, I want them to walk away going, Huh? yeah what uh, how, how, how am I supposed I want them to go and talk to their pastor and go, this Catholic guy asked me these questions from Scripture about this and that and I couldn't answer how do we answer that pastor and get the pastor thinking about it as well. Yeah you know I want people to think about what they believe and why they believe it and that's why and with the church, basically it comes down to authority. In your uh, doctrinal beliefs, your moral and your doctrinal beliefs, faith and morals, who has the authority to decide what is authentically Christian and what is not authentically Christian? Is it each individual who can read, who picks up the Bible and reads it and says, This is how I believe the Holy Spirit has guided me to interpret this Bible, and I come up with this set of beliefs? Or does the church founded by Jesus Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit have the authority to make those decisions as to what is and is not authentically Christian doctrine and practice? That's the question I try to get to with everybody.
0: Yeah, that's that's fantastic questions and a fantastic approach, John. I love it. And I think of two things right away. I think the first thing is my good friend, Dr. Doug Beaumont, a convert, Himself uh, at a Southern Evangelical seminary. He was teaching there and, and working under the late Norman Geisler, you an know, Evangelical heavyweight theologian. It, Doug was working working as assistant for him on, on one of his systematic theology textbooks, helping him to, to source it in the early church. Well, first of all, Doug said that all he was doing was giving him references that would just mention the words that he was talking about. And, and he was kind of ashamed to say that those just got into the book as, you know, here's the early church believes this. And Doug goes, no, 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 this isn't what the early church believes. Easy, just like I just did a word search for you and found some, and you know, so so first of all, the revelation was like you know the, the, the trying to back up your so your you know your theology as evangelical with with the early church, we got to actually read the context. In that case, that wasn't really being done, then. that was kind of shocking. But the more shocking thing for Doug is he said that you know th- those lists of essentials that these evangelical heavyweights would put out there in their theology textbooks. They would list essentials, but those lists of essentials, John would change over the years, right? So like, you know, for Norman Geiser, for example, over the course of his lifetime, say, I don't know, 30, 40 years writing as an evangelical theologian, the lists of essentials that he would present from year to year would actually change. And and Doug kind of went, well, that doesn't make any sense. If they're essentials, they're they're essentials, right? Yeah. And the second thing, you know, that that I love, right, is, well, the essentials have to come from... From somewhere, right? There's, there should be, if we are talking about Scripture alone, well, there should be a clear way for evangelicals doing Bible-alone Christianity to come up with this the same list of essentials, right? Yeah. And, and the fact that that can't be done, that for me was a shocker, right, as an evangelical. For me, it came to a head over the idea of uh, a same-sex marriage and those kind of things were kind of coming to the fore when I was when wrestling with, you know, uh, beginning this journey in the Catholic Church, really, up here in Canada, this is this is a while ago now for us in Canada. This kind of came out as an issue, and that really was obvious how churches were divided, because you saw churches using the same Bible, wrestling with the exact same question, coming to different conclusions. And I kind of went, "Well, how is this? How is this possible? If Scripture is clear, if we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, the the clearness of Scripture, it, it should be clear what the essentials are in here, what we believe." And it, and it wasn't right. And the second thing that you mentioned there, but authority that that really vexed me, and I brought this to my my Protestant pastor at the time, and I didn't get an answer. Would, he just didn't know what to say. Was was Matthew eighteen? I think it's, I think it's Matthew eighteen fifteen, where you yeah. were talked about dealing with disagreement in the church, right, or sin in the church, right? If you and I disagree. How do we settle that matter, right? And what blew me out of the water was, I talked to Dr. John Bergsma, another convert to the Catholic faith, a couple of years ago, and he said that this for him was a thing too, because he was actually a pastor of an evangelical church. And he had people in his church who were leaving his church because they didn't agree with his theology. And he realized then that, look, the, the, the format you know, that, that Christ gives us, the formula we're given for dealing with with schism, with sin, with disagreement in the church... Is bring it to the person you disagree with. If they don't agree, bring it to some elders, bring it to a group of people. If that doesn't work out, bring it to the church. And the church can either say, Yep, yeah, you're right, you're in, or no, you're wrong and you're out. And John and you know, Dr. Bergsman said, Look, I was a pastor of this church. I said, "No, you're wrong. You're out." And people left my church, went down the street to the other evangelical church on that block, yeah. <laughs> and joined that church. And Bob's your uncle, right? They were they were fine. They they were still saved in this body of Christ, part of the church, but disagreed with this other church here, right? And and you just I think bring that to a head, John. That the, you become your own kind of interpreter, your own kind of authority in what you think. Is essential, and what you think the Bible is saying, and if you disagree with this church here and what that pastor in authority says, you can go to the church down here and find something that you agree with. So, like, what are you? What are you? (laughs) I'm 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 on the border of becoming uncordial. John, I'm getting fired up here. Uh, What are you submitting (laughs) to at that point? Right, like the the Bible or your own interpretation of the Bible that, that you can disagree with somebody else and, and go somewhere else. Cause like what's going on there, right?
1: That's- well, that's, that is that point right there is <laughs> <I> a <can't. laughs> point that I make all the time. And I teach all the, I've got a, an email newsletter called apologetics for the masses. And I, and it, it blows my mind cause I'm up to almost 70,000 subscribers. Okay. Oh, yeah. All over the world, all 50 States here in the U S and I tell them all the time that Protestants, that no one, no Protestant Christian believes in sola scriptura. And I have said that to Protestants. They go, yes, I do. I said, no, no, you believe in sola, my private fallible interpretation of scriptura. That's what you actually believe in, because everybody, when you come to scripture, you're interpreting it. When you, when you read anything, you're interpreting. You're interpreting the words, the symbols, the the you know the the concepts that they represent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But particularly with the Bible, where there are things in the Bible that are unclear, as the Bible itself tells us, and these are not non-essential things, because Second Peter three sixteen says that people twist Scripture to their own destruction. So these are important matters, essential matters to use uh, some Protestant uh, terminology that people are getting wrong when they're interpreting the Bible on their own. So this is and, and then, like you said, Matthew 18, that's another place. One of my favorite go tos is because the church is the ultimate authority and disagreement between Christians. But as you were pointing out, many Christians say, no, no. I am the ultimate authority in any disagreement I have with anybody else. Like if the pastor says something, interprets some scripture verse in a way that I disagree with, I'm out of here, buddy. I have no, he has no authority over me to tell me how I need to interpret the Bible. Uh, and then there is one other thing, (coughs) excuse me, I wanted to mention is that in all of this stuff, even with, if you Try to divide doctrine into essential and non-essential. I always go to what was it, John seventeen, with with Jesus at yeah, the Last yeah. Supper, where he prays, "Father, that those who believe in me and in you, through them, through the apostles, may be one, as you and I, Father, are one." Yes. You know. And so I ask people. I say, "Well, do God the Father and God the Son disagree on infant baptism?" You know. Supposedly a non-essential. Do they disagree on um, I, I don't know? Once saved, always saved. Do they disagree on on uh, the inerrancy of the Bible? Well, yeah, Luke got it right, but Matthew he's he's got some errors in there. You know, the father says, yeah, Matthew got a few things wrong, and Jesus is like, no, he didn't. You know, no, they don't disagree on any doctrine or practice of Christian faith and believe none zero zip nada so we as christians in order to fulfill jesus's prayer about us we need to believe the same things in terms of morality in terms of doctrine and if we don't then we are not fulfilling the prayer Of Jesus Christ, our high priest, our king, our Lord, our savior. And that should disturb every single Christian that there is not complete unity within the body of Christ, which for me is one big reason why our culture, our society is literally going to hell in a handbasket right now. Because the Christian body, the body of Christ does not speak with one unified body voice to tell the culture you are wrong on this 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 and this you are wrong on abortion you are wrong on transgenderism. you are wrong on euthanasia you are wrong on these on sex outside of marriage you are wrong on this and this and this we can't speak with one voice because you have uh you know I tell I I use a, in one of my talks I, I mentioned Matthew 18:15 to 18 you know take it to the church is the 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 authority of last resort, I said, well, what if, you know, my wife 20 years ago when she was in her childbearing years, what if after the fourth child, she got pregnant again and she said, well, I've had enough. I can't have a fifth child. I'm going to go and have an abortion. And I go to her, as scripture says, and I said, honey, that would be wrong. You're taking a life, a, a life that is valued immeasurably by almighty God himself. You can't do that. Ah, I don't care what you say. So I go and get two or three witnesses, and we all go and tell her it's wrong. She ah, I don't care about that. So she agrees. Okay, I'll take it to the church, and I take it to the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church says, "Yep, she's wrong. She can't do that." But she goes to, and, and I'm going to pick on a particular denomination here, just not you know not on purpose, but just it's just fact. There used to be a Presbyterian church out in I think it was Omaha, Nevada, oh, Omaha, Nebraska. Um, Had one of the most notorious abortion doctors in the country as a deacon of their church. Do you think if she went to that church that they would say, No, abortion's not wrong? In fact, Deacon Harold set up an appointment for you. So, how can scripture be fulfilled with all these divisions, with all these authorities contradicting one another? You know, Catholics get slammed all the time because. We have a Pope and we, we supposedly listen to the Pope instead of to Jesus, which isn't the case, but that's what we're, we're often accused of doing. But here's the thing. What would God, what would be more likely that Jesus would leave behind a church with one Pope or a church with tens of thousands of Popes yeah, yeah. You know, all contradicting each other. So yeah, the, the current setup within Protestantism, authority, the church, etc. cetera, it just, to me, it does not make
0: sense.
1: Just doesn't make
0: sense. Yeah, and John seventeen. I mean, I <laughs> that for me, as a non-Catholic Christian, was so convicting. I read that and I went, okay, well, where is this? First of all, w- with the format that Christ leaves us for the solving disputes, which, as you illustrated, I said the same thing. It, it can't be. It cannot be properly implemented. We we can't do that. Right. Right in Protestant Christianity, it's not possible. So my question then was well why did Jesus leave us this for, this formula if we can't actually use this and fulfill it right is not broken and would Christ leave us a, a broken system like that right and then with John 17 okay well we don't have this unity we're not one as he and the father are one so why would Christ pray for that why would we why would he yeah. ask us to to do an impossible thing set an impossible goal for us, right? It doesn't seem like a very kind and loving thing to do to give us, A, a system that won't work, it doesn't work properly, and, and B, set a goal that's impossible to attain, right? And I, and I have some good Anglican friends who are you know kind of Anglo-Catholic, kind of like, well, you know, we, we tried the Catholic thing, didn't work, we're Anglican because we value Scripture and tradition equally, but we don't want the Pope kind of thing. And they're kind of, to me, it's kind of a, a depressing kind of stance is like well we as humans broke that and it's our fault we can't we can't fix it now so yeah maybe that system was meant to work originally maybe we weren't we're supposed to have that unity in john 17 that was a real thing we could have at one point acquired maybe we were supposed to be able to dissolve to resolve disputes like jesus says in matthew 18 but we broke that and it's impossible now it, it, it can't be fixed well well well, again, like, you know, wouldn't you think that, that Christ would, would have foreseen that and would have said, like, you know, here's a system for the first 1,000 years or 1,500 right. years, and, and after that, here's what we're, we're going to do, right? Or something, right? That, that That's just not, that doesn't make any sense, especially if we're saying, Swell Scriptura is the thing, Bible alone, because in the that's the, the system based on, the, that's the biblical system for resolving disputes in Matthew 18, there's no other yeah. thing. And if that, if we're saying, yeah, it's broken and can't be fixed and it's our fault and whoops, oh well, try our best. Like that doesn't seem like a very loving God, John. Would, they, would, they would do that to us. It doesn't make sense.
1: No, that's uh, – so many people I've talked to think God just kind of one day leaned over a cloud and dropped the Bible down from heaven. No. Boom. <laughs> there it is, guys. Have at it. Now, well, what? This is how we're supposed to figure out what's true Christianity, what's not true Christianity, what what are good morals, what are bad morals, what what are good teaching, what is false teaching. Each one of us picking up the Bible and reading it on our own, and then what I get into, I, I um, you know I had a, a dialogue one day with a uh, pastor at a, a Bible church here in the Birmingham area. And he, he hit me, he started hitting me right off the bat about, you know, no man is infallible, your pope is this, is And he started reading scripture verses to me. And he would read the scripture verse and he'd go, what that means is, what that means is, and then he'd yeah, read it yeah. up, what that means is. And I was like, I said, hang on a second, Pastor. I said, can, can we agree at the outset here that the best you can do according to your theology is your fallible interpretation of scripture versus my fallible interpretation of scripture. That's the absolute best we can do because you don't have authority over me and I don't have authority over you. And he's like, and he he was stunned. I, I could tell by looking on his face, he had never, ever considered that proposition. And so he's like, well, uh, no, nah, you know, and he kind of hems and haws, but eventually he's sort of indirectly, lets it go you know so we go on for another several minutes and then I give him a scripture verse or two and I said well the way to properly interpret that and then he goes wait a minute John and he sticks his finger just right in my face wait a minute John you just said the best you can do is your fallible interpretation of scripture versus my fallible interpretation and I just kind of smiled at him I said no pastor I said that's the best you can do that's your theology. I said, my theology says the best I can do is the infallible teaching of the church founded by Jesus Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit versus your private fallible interpretation of scripture. He did not like that at all, you know, but again, it's not, I'm not trying to embarrass you or show you up or anything. I want you to think about this because if it's just my opinion versus your opinion, which is what it is in pretty much all of Protestantism, how the heck do we ever decide authoritatively on matters of salvation? Yeah. You know, which, I mean, First Timothy 4, 1 says, people leave the faith by believing doctrines of demons. Well, every false doctrine is a doctrine of demons. Because Satan is the father of all lies. So if I'm believing once saved, always saved, and it's not true, I'm believing a doctrine of demons. If I'm not believing once saved, always saved, and it is true, well, then I'm believing a doctrine of demons. So, so many Christians, they don't even give this stuff a second thought. And I'm like, you can leave the faith. According to the word of God, by believing the wrong things, whether you realize it or not, you're separating yourself from the body of Christ by believing the doctrines of demons. And that scares the bejeebers out of me.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Those bejeebers are very scared. That's amazing, John. You talk about binding and loosing in this book too, and that for me again was one of those verses that I, you know, when I began to then read deeply from my Bible and actually, right? Because for me it began when I, when I, this this Protestant pastor that I was working for asked me some questions about the origins of the Bible, and I began to to really dig deeply into my my scripture and go, okay, well, what are they talking about? What do these questions mean? What, what are these answers? And I would find. I, th- I was surprised anybody to find these verses in my Bible that had been there all along that talk about binding and loosing, where, gosh, there there's just no way of reading that. There's not a way of reading that in a plain sense, meaning that you don't see Christ giving authority to bind and loose to the the apostles. Like There are ways to interpret that away and, and mean different things, and maybe that authority ended at a certain point when they died, or maybe it was some kind of symbolic authority or something. But if you, if you read those verses, the times that Christ gives the, that authority to the apostles, and then to, to, to Peter in particular, he's given them something there. And I, something very important sounding, and it seems like they understood that, and they go and exercise that power in the Book of Acts and in church council and stuff. And I, I kind of read that after reading that for years and years and years, kind of for the first time, and I went, "Well, yeah, what does that mean? And how do I understand that as a as an evangelical?" Because and and I couldn't, I couldn't understand what it what it would have meant to give these these apostles this particular authority. To do something okay where where did that go how does that exist now in Protestant Christianity why if it doesn't why not like when did it go away and and i and I could find no sensible answers to that question right, right? as I looked around and, and, and asked people that I knew and and read my theologians and and looked in my my denomination and I it wasn't there so what? <laughs> yeah that's i I've asked
1: I asked that question, but I said, you know, does your church, I'll ask people, does your church have the authority to bind something on earth that is then bound in heaven or have the authority to loose something on earth that is then loosed in heaven? Most, the vast majority of Protestant denominations and churches do not claim to have such an authority, at least the ones yeah, I've come yeah, across. Yeah, yeah. So what I, what I get in response is, well, What that means is, and they explain it, I've had it explained away several different, you know, ways that people have come up with to explain away the fact that Jesus very obviously gives his church, the church he's founding, the authority to bind on earth what is then bound in heaven and to loose on earth what is then loosed in heaven. And Again, that's one of those things, that's why it's in my book, because it's one of those things that I have never gotten a consistent, rational, scripturally consistent or logically consistent, rational answer to my questions. Well, he gave this authority. Where is it? Who uses it? Who exercises it? Who has a history of exercising this authority in the last 2,000 years of Christianity? No, well, my church does. Now, again, tell me my church is wrong. Fine. Make the argument. But my church at least claims to have this authority. Most other churches don't even bother making the claim. I'm like, well, then how can your church be the church of the scriptures of the Bible? If you don't even make the claim, it's like I tell people I taught my kids, each one of them when they're, I think, turn nine or ten. I asked them a question. I said, how long ago did Jesus live? And they were like, well, you know, and with a little help, they get it 2,000 years ago. Oh, okay, yeah. I said, did Jesus start a church? And they're like, well, and so I read them Matthew 16, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And they go, okay, yeah, Jesus started a church. So then I said, okay, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He started a church. So how old should Jesus' church be? And that's when even my nine-year-olds would look at me and go, "Is this a trick question?" You know, because <laughs> uh, two thousand years. I say, "Yeah." Well, but then what I tell you, I ask, "Brother, how old is your church?" You know, how old is it? Yeah. Very few. A few do, but very few make the claim to be two thousand years old and having been founded by Jesus Christ in Israel in the first century. And well, if you don't even make the claim. Well, then, why aren't you looking around at a church that does at least make the claim and see if they can back up what they claim?
0: Yeah, and I think the you know the, the truly shocking extension from that then, John, for me was to realize that, gosh, gosh, golly, those apostles who Christ gave the authority to bind, you know, on heaven as as on earth, they passed on that authority, even in Scripture itself. We see in Scripture itself, we see that being passed on, you know, Paul to Timothy and and Matthias, when Judas is, is, you know, hangs himself to replace him. We see it in Scripture itself and unmistakably in the very early church fathers who inherited their faith from the apostles, right? We see them... Clearly, understanding succession—the—the—the the, the, the offices that were given to the apostles—those things carried on, right? And that—that that for me, that that realization was like, wait, wait a second, like, wait a minute, I don't have this guy who's in authority at in, at my church or my denomination or even in my, even anywhere in this pond I'm swimming in. That's not a thing we ever thought about, right? But it's right there in Scripture that passing on of the authority. And it's right there in those who learned, you know, the words of Christ from those who wrote the scriptures and who lived and walked and, and breathed and slept and hung out and ate with Jesus himself, right? And I kinda went, wait a minute, like we don't have that. Right? I, I had a, a good a good friend who for a while went to a church when they had these these guys called apostolic elders who kind of were overseeing the church, right? They're the kind of the leadership committee of the church. they'd hire the pastor, kind of like the board of directors, right? They'd hire the pastor, right. they'd hire the so-and-so. They called themselves apostolic elders because they passed on their authority to the next elder when they were when they were done, I guess. But then you go, Well, well, who gave them the first authority? was right. <laughs> the first apostle in their church? And it wasn't it wasn't Peter. Right? It wasn't the first. Of, it wasn't the actual apostles, right? They they understood the concept there, but nowhere, nowhere in my orbit as an evangelical, did we ever claim that we had succession back to those apostles. Yet we see in scripture that 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 binding and losing power. They understood it quite obviously as a power they could pass on, and the very first Christians in the early church fathers, we see that that being passed on, again and on and on and on down, down through history, right, right to the Reformation, and shockingly up to today. Like when I realized that, I was like, "Wait a minute, what, why am I not in that church? <laughs> What's going on
1: here?" Christ. Yeah, that's I tell I ask people all the time. I say. What happened to that authority? Yes, because, you know, I mean, like you said, Matthew sixteen, Matthew eighteen, but then also Matthew twenty eight. Jesus says, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore." So he's giving them their yes. his, his authority yes. to go and and teach all nations. Which those twelve apostles he's talking to at that time are not going to be able to teach. All nations because all nations haven't been discovered yet. (laughs) You know, so, uh, so who's going to teach all nations, but what I get in response, what I've often gotten in response is, well, that authority died with the apostles. Right. And so I say, well, number one, where does it say that in the Bible? Yeah. Number two. So what you're saying is, Okay, the church needed Jesus' authority in the first century when the apostles were still alive. But after that, we just got it right and didn't need that authority anymore. We didn't need anybody with Jesus' authority to be able to bind and loose on earth what is bound and loose. We didn't need that anymore. No, we needed it more after the apostles were gone. And so it just makes (laughs) no, again, these these books. Why I call my books blue collar, whatever blue collar uh, apologetics, or you know blue collar answer to Protestantism, because blue collar to me reeks of common sense. Sure, you know plumbers, yeah. uh, farmers, factory workers, etc. You got to have common sense to do your job, yeah. and so these things that I'm talking about, these questions they just come out of common sense and simple logic. Yeah. What happened to that authority? It's right there. And if it is dead with the after the apostles, why even mention it in the scriptures? Cuz now you got me looking around for some church that has this authority. Yeah. But if it's not there, well, why the heck, Holy Spirit, did you inspire Matthew to put that in the Bible? You know, you're you're, you're just, you know, you're you're slapping me in the face. You're making a joke of me. You know, it's like, John, I pulled a good one on you. You know, really? Come on. Yeah. That makes
0: sense. (laughs) It doesn't. And, and. The I don't know the, the 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 icing on the cake the cherry on top for me the thing that really was like yeah you know what I'm not crazy in thinking this was when I read Saint Francis de Sales you know this the exiled bishop of I think it was Geneva at the time of the Reformation right. writing to the Protestants kind of like in his area you know who who are newly following these, these Protestant reformers leaving the Catholic Church in droves and one of the things he said was wait a minute Protestants. Who gave you the authority to start these new churches? Because that yeah. wasn't a thing you did, right? You didn't just go off and start a new church. You ha- were under the authority of the bishop, who was the who was the guy who, you know a- appointed priests to churches and established things in his, in his diocese. That was the way that it was done up to the Reformation. and I wasn't yeah. imagining it or thinking I was crazy and this this must exist somewhere because it was there. and when it was challenged, kind of for the first time, The Catholic Church said, wait a minute, we don't do this. This isn't how it's been done. Because it hadn't been, it it, it was a new thing to do that at the Reformation, right? That that was the way, that authority, that succession of authority, that was the the normative thing, right? And and then you go, okay, well, if that wasn't, if they were all wrong and mistaken that, it did die at the Apostles and wasn't passed on, well, they were wrong for 1,500 years and, and doing it wrong until... These reformers came along and right. and fixed it. Is that a loving God? I mean, I I, I just don't. see I, I didn't see, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we shouldn't be Catholic, but I didn't see a way out of that that made any logical, common, <laughs> blue collar sense.
1: Yeah, that's. I, I tell people all the time. I say, look, by your system of theology, I. With my finance degree and MBA, and yeah, I've done a lot of self-study in apologetics and scripture and all that, but no, no formal degrees, no bachelor, or master, certainly no PhD in theology uh, or scripture study. I have as much authority as the head of, say, a Baptist seminary who has three PhDs in scripture study, you know, or actually a twelve-year-old has as much thor- authority <laughs> oh, no. as the head of a yeah. Baptist seminary with three PhDs. because what authority does that, that head of the seminary have over that 12 year old, none to tell the 12 year old when he picks up the Bible and he starts reading and he says, you know, John the Baptist said Jesus was coming with a baptism of fire. So he goes and pours lighter fluid on his head and lights it up and says, Hey, I'm baptism of fire, you know, and then, How do you tell the the 12-year-old, no, that's a bad interpretation? Well, no, you can say I disagree with your interpretation, but you can't tell him he's wrong because you have no authority to do that. The lack of authority, the lack of infallible authority to me in Protestantism is its Achilles heel because all you're getting is just division after division after division. If, If Jesus leaves us here on planet earth long enough then it is my uh, i suggest that eventually we will have a a separate denomination basically for every family within protestantism yeah okay which in effect we actually have that now on an individual basis because again Every individual, well, the pastor's saying this about John 6 or about 1 Corinthians 2 and or whatever. I disagree with him. I'm going to go find a church that teaches the real understanding, the real meaning of Scripture as I see it, as I have divide, de, uh, decided it is. And um, it's like, number. I don't want that responsibility. No. You know, that's, I was out of the church for 13 years. And when I came back into the church, I did a, I was like, okay, I need to come back to God, but do I have to be Catholic? Why can't I be Baptist or evangelical? So I started researching and I started looking at it. I said, well, there's no authority there. You know, and, and here I am on my own trying to decide, well, is abortion, is that really wrong? You know, is sex outside of marriage wrong? Because those 13 years I was living a world-class heathen lifestyle. So is this wrong? Is that I was having to decide all these huge moral and doctrinal wow, yeah, issues yeah. on my own, and I get back into the Catholic Church and I realized, I said, well, wait a minute. There are people a whole lot smarter and a whole lot holier than I am who have already decided these questions. Whew. Yeah. Burden lifted from my shoulders. Yeah. And that's why you know I would not want to be a pastor in a Protestant church with the potential of leading somebody wrong, leading one of Jesus's little ones astray. Because I'm giving them my private, fallible interpretation yeah. of Scripture, yeah. which could be wrong. Yeah. That's, that again, that's another thing that would scare the bejeebers out of me. Yeah,
0: yeah. And the huge difference, I mean, the, the massive difference between becoming Catholic and, and remaining or, or, or existing as an evangelical Christian, right, is that authority question, right? that Because yes. the church believes, now, as evangelical, you say, that, well, they're wrong on this. But you, you you can test this claim and look at it from history, look at it from from Scripture, understand where it comes from, right? The church believes that through that binding and loosing, it still exists today. And the church it has that God-given authority to say this is what— what the, the the true belief is on this subject, on abortion, or on this, you know, on, on marriage, on this, what the Eucharist is, on this, how to worship God, on baptism, right? The church claim, you know, staking that claim back to what Christ said to the apostles, the Bible yeah. Luke says, so we can determine this. Well, like like you've said, no, no Protestant on earth, whether they're a Protestant pastor or a 12-year-old or a seminary professor, has the authority to say that and have that be binding for all Protestants. Right. That's a huge difference. Like you say, a huge weight off your shoulders for one thing, right? If you accept that claim, you know what? Yeah, I believe the church has that. You look at it through history. You look at it through the church fathers, through the Bible, through scripture. You wrestle with it and go, you know what? Yeah, I believe the church is what it says it is. That is a huge weight off your shoulders to be part of that church, that can that can authoritatively bind and loose, right? That, that's founded by Christ on the rock of Peter, with the bishops in succession and and the Pope. Like that's a huge difference in how you live your faith life, based on that wrestling with each and every doctrine to try and figure out what what is the best biblical interpretation of this thing, when there are just a multitude of different options, right? That's a huge yeah. different way of living your faith in those two camps. That, that, right, that, I, I can't overstate that. Right? Well, that's, that's –
1: like, when it comes to uh, just underlying the whole thing, this, this this doctrine or dogma of sola scriptura, where I get to read the Bible by myself answering to no authority outside of me and my own imagination to decide what is true and what is false in regards to Christian doctrine, morality, and practice <laughs> – so I, I debated a Church of Christ preacher several times into several different cities several years ago, and uh, one of the one of the topics we did was Sola Scriptura. The proposition was every question about Christianity can be answered from the Bible. He was the affirmative. I was the negative. He gets up, gives his first 10, 12 minutes. I get up, and I ask a question. I said, Pat, do you believe the gospel of Mark is the inspired and errant word of God? And that it was written by Mark, the uh, disciple of both Peter and and Paul. He said, yes, I do. I said, where in the Bible does it say the gospel of Mark is the inspired and errant Uh, word of God? And he gets up, he ignores me his second time. So I get up, I tell everybody this was in a church of Christ. I said, as you see, he didn't answer the question with, with a Bible verse. So I win the debate. Yeah, I just declared myself the winner. So he comes back up. <laughs> so <cordial>. and he, <laughs> Yes. This is why I often get accused of being a little rambunctious. Uh, so he comes back up. He says, well, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, if we know it, that we know who exactly wrote it, as long as we know it's the inspired and word of God. So I come back up. I said, well, how do you know that if you don't know who wrote it? Because the inspiration works through the person. So we debated the same topic about four or five months later in a different city, and he gets up, does his thing. I get up, I ask the very same question. He comes walking up, big smile on his face, and I can read his mind. He's going, "I got you, John. I got an answer to this. You know, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not going down this time." And he says, "We know the Bible is the inspired, and errant Word of God because of the witness of the early Christians." And I just, I went. <laughs> And I you know, try to I like the the proposition can be answered from the Bible. The questions about yeah, Christian yeah. he didn't answer from the Bible. So I get back up. and I said, Pat, do you know what we in the Catholic Church call the witness of the early Christians? Tradition <laughs> oh, and, no. and, and, and so, oh, after the debate, yeah. this this huge man. I mean, he was like 6'8", 280, 300 pounds, standing right in front of me. I, he goes, son. I go, yes, sir. He goes, I'm a deacon in this here church. I said, yes, sir. He goes, our boy didn't answer your question, did he? <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> sir, he didn't. He said, well, you've given me a lot to think about. I said, well, that's what a debate is all uh, about, so I appreciate you sharing that. So, that I mean, it's sola scriptura is logically contradictory yeah. because you need an authority that authority word again, outside of the Bible in order to have the Bible in the first place. So again, that's, that's why everything I do you know, a lot of scripture mixed in there, but it's based in common sense and simple logic. Yeah. And I just, I want people to answer my questions. If somebody can convince me that the Catholic church is wrong on any single one, one of its doctrines, I will no longer be Catholic. Because the church founded by Jesus Christ and guided by the Holy Spirit cannot teach error in its doctrines. Just can't. So I keep trying to get people to convince me. But in the meantime, I'm going to be trying to convince you. So... (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. John, we could talk for literally hours, I'm realizing Yeah, now. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm realizing now. I mean, I I barely scraped the surface of this fantastic book you've written, uh, and we haven't even touched the other one, and your, your other work. I mean, this is awesome stuff, John. And so, I mean, I, I thank you for this. Maybe this could be a, a multiple-parter in the future. I can would see, love it. I can see much material here. Here to mine, and I, I truly again hope that this is like stimulating. This is, this is the that the, 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 again Doug Beaumont calls it the pebble in your shoe, like that thing that really you got to wrestle with. You, you need to. I call to. it the
1: pee under the mattress. Yeah.
0: You know, yeah. the princess and the pea. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you have young kids, the pea in the mattress is also like... Oh. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that life, yeah, that, I think that, that would make me <laughs> uncomfortable too, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that's our lived reality uh, some days uh, up here. John... Where do you want to point people towards to, to, first of all, find this book, follow you, the stuff that you're doing? I'll put these links in the show notes as well. But where do you want to point them towards uh, as we wrap this thing up to, to find and follow the work that, that you're doing, John? Because awesome. uh, My
1: website, which I've got I think 28 or 29 different audio talks on there on various aspects of the Catholic faith. Most of them are from me. One I've got one of Scott Hahn's talks and a couple other people, but most are mine on, on various apologetics topics uh, and they're all free. you know, so you can download them. You can listen to them free. Or if you still have a CD player in your car, you can order a free CD <laughs> or CDs. Um, but it's BibleChristianSociety.com. Bible Christian society.com. Bible Christian society.com You can sign up for my free apologetics newsletter. I've got all sorts of written and, and uh, uh, audio materials there that are free. I've got one thing, a TV series I did on EWTN. That's the only thing I think on there that costs money, and that's because I have to pay EWTN to get copies. So BibleChristianSociety.com. To get either one of the books, Blue Collar Apologetics or a Blue Collar Answer to Protestantism, you can go to EWTN, EWTN.com slash, or no, I'm take it back. EWTNRC for religious catalog.com, EWTNRC.com, and just type in blue collar, and my stuff will pop right up.
0: That's fantastic. I'll put links to all those in the show notes uh, for listeners, viewers to find too. John, uh, awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being here. I want to say God bless you. The prolific, fantastic work you're doing for the church, John. Uh, And thank you so much for being here today. This has been a real blast. Uh,
1: Keith, I have loved it. I've enjoyed it very much. And I think we have kept it fairly cordial, haven't we? You
0: did a good job, John. Yeah, good,
1: good. good. I look forward to, to doing this again sometime.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much, sir.
1: All right. God bless. Take care.
0: Well, the problem with a guest that you really enjoy talking to... (laughs) So you look at the clock halfway through and go, oh my gosh, it's already halfway through and you've only scratched the surface of this conversation. We barely even got a bit into this thing and I have a list of questions and I've gotten through the first question and I kind of go, oh shoot, <laughs> what's next? So hopefully I can get John back on the show for more, more of this because for me, these are the kind of questions that really I wrestled with as evangelical. The same questions that I think are important to really Examine to, to chew on, and you may come away with different answers than I came away with, and that's completely fine with me. But there are questions I think worth asking. Hopefully, you find that too. Let me know, cordialcatholic at gmail.com is, is my email address for your feedback. I'm often inundated with emails and can't get back to all of them in a timely fashion, but I do read them all and write back as soon as humanly possible. So please do reach out there, cordialcatholic at gmail.com. The com is our website for show notes and, and links. And, and my blog and those kinds of things. We're on TikTok. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter at Cordial Catholic. We are on Facebook, The Cordial Catholic. And to watch what you're hearing, head over to YouTube.com/slash The Cordial Catholic. Hey, while you're there, please do me a favor and subscribe to our channel. It's growing bit by bit, but I. But everyone, everyone always says, hey, why isn't this channel bigger? These are great conversations, so please do head over there if you can and subscribe to that channel because that helps to grow and tell the algorithm to, to show this video to more people. And thank you. If you're listening to our podcast or on Spotify, same thing goes there. Ratings and reviews help. And thanks, guys. Know that I'm praying for you. Please pray for me too. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Take care and God bless.